Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Sagi Brody, who is the CTO of Opti9, a leading hybrid cloud solution provider specializing in digital transformation, data storage, DevOps, backup and recovery, compliance-driven migration, managed cloud services, and cloud-first application services. That is a lot, and we're probably not going to talk about all that, but we are going to talk to Sagi about some of those offerings, and we're going to drill down on cyber resilience and data protection services. But before we do that, I'm going to say hello to Sagi. Sagi, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. Hey, um, I think that you mentioned you're based down in Boca Raton. I am, yep. Yeah. I um, I don't know exactly how close that is to Miami, but from what I understand, the mayor of Miami is doing a great job in terms of facilitating and encouraging the um, the expansion of the startup community and bringing in or welcoming IT companies into the area. Are you getting any carryover effect or is there anything similar to that in Boca Raton? Uh, I would say not directly. I mean, Boca is its own sort of tech mecca in its own right. Um a lot of big uh, infrastructure companies that are based out of here. Miami, though, is certainly um, sort of seeing an influx. I would say there's a bunch of security companies that are based out of there. And there's, I think Miami is acting as a hub for um, a tremendous amount of talent coming in from Latin America. Oh, that's interesting. Because, I mean, one of the demographic kind of trends that we, we see from here is that apparently Florida is the fastest growing state or one of the fastest growing states um, and on the West Coast, obviously, California is losing a big chunk of its population every year. A lot of that is attributed to, you know, people on the East Coast, they want to retire. Some people out here, they want to retire and they want to go find the sun. And um, and then also to some of the, the favorable taxes and stuff like that. But what you're saying is, is part of that growth probably is uh, because of the, the growth of the IT community. And then um, you said an influx of talent from, from South America. Yeah, actually, it's, it's an interesting conversation. So where I live... Um, the community that I'm in is, you know, there's, it's probably 50% folks from the Northeast. Um, uh, lots of folks in tech, um, lots of startup founders. Uh, I'd say there's a little, little bit from Chicago, a little bit less from California, but we do have a, a large number of, um, <clears throat> folks from, from uh, Brazil, Argentina, um, even Colombia uh, and, and plenty of uh, tech founders from there as well. Well, that's, that's, that's also interesting from another point of view, because one of the biggest challenges out here on the West Coast, um, in tech in general, but especially in cybersecurity, is finding good talent, um, which could actually lead into the conversation about managed services, because one of the arguments for managed services is, hey, trying to go out and hire the right subject matter expertise is, is very can be very challenging, right? And you have that person 24-7, well, you have them on the clock as an FTE versus you know outsourcing. We'll get to that a little bit later. But what what you're saying then is in Florida, it might be easier to get some qualified talent for less than West Coast prices because you have, I guess I'm, these people are immigrants or are they um, on some type of business visa or what's the situation? Yeah, I mean, the folks that I, <clears throat> excuse me, the folks that I typically interact with are, are probably, you know, the ones that I've met here are probably more on the executive level. And I would imagine that they still have a large number of staff back in, in, in South America. But, you know, nearshoring as an outsourced option is, is sort of the, the latest, you know, latest craze. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I'm seeing my peers and other managed service providers really looking at those you know, South American countries that are on the same time zone that, that speak good English, that have a great skill set um, as, a, a, as a, a really good option. Are you also, do you, do, does um, Opti9 provide, is it nearshoring or is it basically everybody here is here in the U.S.? Um, for uh, I'd say like over 90% of our employees are U.S.-based. We have a few developers who are outside the country, um, but we have a big focus w- within um, providing services to organizations that have very strict compliance requirements, um, export control, U.S. persons. You know, we work with defense contractors, so we have to be, um, you know, very specific in, in, in who provides us services so for us. It, Today it's all it's all U.S. based. Okay, so when you initially engage with a prospective customer, what's the typical scenario? Are they do they reach out to you and say, "Hey, we're looking for some type of a managed service provider for X service"? I mean, because I went through a whole you know laundry list of different services that you guys provide, um, or are you reaching out to organizations say, Hey, we provide all these services. Are any of these of interest to you? Or do you reach out and say, Hey, let's talk about cyber resilience. I mean, what's the typical scenario or is there a typical scenario? Well, I mean, I'd say it's, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. Um, and we do have a lot of folks that are calling us and specifically asking for the services that we provide that are related to, to cyber. And I would say of, of the, of the laundry list that you mentioned, um, you know, I would say backups as a service and disaster recovery as a service are, are the ones that, you know, are, are relevant. Um, and a lot of organizations are looking to check boxes to ensure that they are compliant with the, the you know, um, the frameworks that, that their industries have subscribed to and ensuring that they're doing what they, what they need to do. Um, other organizations are acknowledging that in order to ensure that their infrastructure is secure, that they just want to pass, they don't have an appetite to to own it internally and to take ownership and accountability that their infrastructure is going to be resilient um, and secure and performant, and they'd rather just pass ownership and accountability to a third party. Um, so I'd say it's two. For the organizations that do have an appetite to manage their production, usually we're providing backups or disaster recovery as sort of a bolt-on, which is like a, a good, really nice place to kind of draw the line in the sand where you can shift ownership to a vendor for, for some of your requirements, um, but still maintain, you know, running your own systems. And for others, they're just like, you guys take everything. We're going to folk, we're going to take our IT resources and focus on uh, adding business value. Is there a particular sweet spot in terms of size maturity, so on, uh, in terms of the types of organizations that you feel your services, those services specifically, um, are more appropriate for? Yeah, um, you know, I'd say the mid market mid market enterprise is is where our focus is, and um, I'd say uh, enterprises that have you know a few hundred users, maybe hundreds to thousands. Um, typically, what we see is um, it's not they're never clean IT environments. You know, mm-hmm. they, they either have um, interesting network requirements, um, interesting compliance requirements, uh, uh, you know, some edge edge platforms, legacy platforms, and, you know, applying a, a traditional disaster recovery strategy or backup strategy to those types of environments can, can be challenging. Um, and so at the higher up the stack of enterprise organizations you go, the more gotchas there are. And mm-hmm. really 
frankly, the, the less vendors that are out there that, that can hit those touch points. Um, and so we kind of focus on that. You know, if you're looking at disaster recovery, you know, you can't do, you can't provide disaster recovery as a service and only hit 85% of their critical platforms. You know, it's, it's kind of all or nothing. And, you know, you, you definitely don't want to go back to the person and say, oh, well, um, why don't you virtualize that workload? It's kind of like, yeah, well, we know that if we, we would have if we could have, but, you know, it has this weird scenario. So when you start to have this uh, initial conversation around cyber resilience and disaster recovery, what are the, what are the main questions that, uh, that you're going to ask of the customer and what are the questions that they're going to ask from you? Well, you know, those conversations typically start with what are your requirements for, for your RTOs and RPOs? And, you know, a lot of this is uh, educational in nature. And, you know, I think the, the, the industry and market has matured. You know, years ago, we would be explaining to people how, how backups and disaster recovery are not the same uh, and how they are sort of two different strategies designed for two different scenarios. Backup providing you with like um, like immediate file restore and providing like long-term archival data or maybe a legal hold. And disaster recovery really being a strategy that provides you with, um, uh, with a recourse, you know, if, if, your, if your systems go down or if there's a ransomware attack um, or whatever the case may be, and you need to ensure that your applications are up and running in seconds. So it's, it's kind of, think of it as kind of the difference. And when you think of backups, you think of restore. When you think of disaster recovery, you should think of resume. Okay. Now that's interesting because I actually thought that um, in a ransomware attack where, you know, they encrypt all your data, having that backup would be the way to go. But what you're saying is the, um, the, the disasters, the disaster recovery, which I guess what it was just making sure that the whole system is instead of the data is back online. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So with, with disaster recovery, um, we are replicating all of the applications and systems to, um, our, our service, so we, are, or we'll use third-party clouds like AWS as well, um, and there's, there's pros and cons, another conversation, but we will replicate all, all of the data and, and, and the servers in their sort of native format to another platform which is capable of running them. So on a backup system, you're going to use cheap and deep cold storage for archival. With disaster recovery, the infrastructure needs to be just as performant or, be- or better than what you have in production so that it can handle, you know, running your infrastructure. And then what you, what we do then is we, we pre-configure all of the dependencies. And so we want to be sure that the, the firewalls are, are the same as, as production and the configurations are mm-hmm. so security network and authentication, all of that is up and running in advance so that we can just spin up your servers and your applications will continue to function. Um, you know, easy, easier said than done. I think disaster recovery is really about consumption. It's really a network conversation. How are users going to consume it? Um, and, you know, the, the more complex people's infrastructures get these days, you know, years ago when, when your critical production environment was in site A and you would replicate everything to site B, it wasn't as challenging. Today, when the definition of your critical production environment is some applications in, in a private cloud, some in public cloud, some in third-party SaaS, maybe you have a complex SD-WAN network, it is, it is much more difficult to provide resilience of that, which is why, you know, outsourcing to a vendor that focuses on that obviously is becoming more of a, of a, bio, of a, of a chosen solution. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I noticed on, on your website that you, I guess, promote the idea of uh, 
providing these services for hybrid cloud scenarios. And I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, so I, I can see that if everything was 100% cloud, I could, I could see the, that it would be simpler to, to kind of get, the, you know, replicate the services that they're running or the platform that they're running, the tools, the apps, everything like that, and then just um, flip a switch and have them go from there. But how do you manage the stuff that's on-prem? Uh, actually, the on-prem stuff in a way is, is easier, um, I would say, than, than some of the public some of the public cloud applications. So, so yeah, if, if you're building a cloud native application using public cloud uh, platform as a service, it is actually a lot more complicated to ensure resilience unless you have a huge team like a Netflix and you can build it into the app. Again, easier said than done. Um, on-prem is easier today because we can we can use third-party data movers. Um, like we we uh, we partner with Veeam, which is a, a backup and replication software tool where we're like one of their largest providers in the world. And they do, that software does the data movement real well. It's going to replicate uh, all of the data. They now support CDP, so real-time replication. Um, and then we are providing all the, the wrappers around that, ensuring the RPOs are being met, working with our customers to pre-configure the, the consumption uh, and build the runbooks. And today, because of hybrid, um, these things are much more complicated. You need a separate runbook for uh, an action for a full site failover, a separate runbook for a partial site failover. For instance, if one server gets hit with ransomware and you want to use your DR site as an isolated recovery environment, you're not going to fail over the entire site. You want to fail over a minimum viable product. So you need a separate runbook for partial failover. And you also need a separate runbook for testing of your DR site. Uh, especially because of hybrid. If you boot up your applications in DR to test and you haven't sort of um, fenced off that DR network from the rest of the world and if your applications are interacting with like Salesforce or Workday or any other SaaS platform, you might start messing with your data in DR and actually poison your production data somewhere else because they're all interconnected. And so we're very careful in in, um, creating runbooks per scenario um, and understanding what the consumption strategy is for each one of those. Sounds, sounds complex. Um, and I, and I want to ask you about the process of how you kick off an engagement, understand, you know, what infrastructure apps data that, a, that a prospective customer has and, you know, and, and how you kind of map that out. Um, but first, you know, you, you've talked a lot of, about like, you know, if something goes down because of malware, um, and we tend to think of cyber resilience oftentimes in terms of cyber threats, but you know, I got to think in Florida, you guys have hurricanes that come in and things like that. Is the, is the recovery process or the, uh, the resilience strategy any different for physical threats? Well, I, I would say no, you know, the, the, the run, well, it really depends. Um, the recovery process is the same but what what we we we're trying to do is to you know there in order to use the the disaster recovery infrastructure as a viable option in response to a ransomware attack to ensure that your your applications continue to function you do have to do some work you know at the onset and up front so that you can use it for that scenario and i think this is where where people have a false sense of security lots of people out there they think, oh, I have backups. I'm good. If I if I have a ransomware attack, you know, I'm I'm okay. I, I have a solution. Or I have a disaster recovery strategy. I'll be okay. But there's always, you know, horrible assumptions out there. 
um, about what you're capable of recovering from and how, how quickly. Um, so with disaster recovery, one of the things we can do is we can set a journal for how back, how far back in time we can instantly bring up the entire environment for. So obviously that journal needs to be able to go, um, back far enough to before there was an inf the infection that actually took down the systems. It might not need to go as far back from the original infection, but just to the, the point of, of compromise. Um, so that's the first thing I would say that's, that's important. Um, also with disaster, with disaster recovery, you know, and with the services that we provide, it, it works the best if we can work hand in hand with our customers, MSSPs. You know, when you think about umbrella protection for cybersecurity, the MSSPs that are providing, or even the in-house in SOCs that are providing the proactive services, the threat detection, the threat protection, the, the, the security scans, you know, that's, that's proactive, but you still need a reactive solution as well. That's where we come in. Um, and by pre-configuring the disaster recovery environment, uh, it can be used as an isolated recovery environment to bring up the applications um, in a production capacity and also to do forensics. Um, but, but the biggest point I want to make in regards to all of this is that what, what we've seen in the marketplace recently as it relates to, to ransomware attacks is that we've seen attackers, when they get into organizations' IT environments, they're specifically looking for the backup and replication tools. They're, they're first seeking them so that they can destroy any backups or any other means of recovery, obviously to increase their chance of, of being of being paid the ransom. And so they're just like the techs that are out there, they're getting trained on all these on these software tools so that they know how to log into them effectively and destroy everything, which is which is a new attack surface that really we don't think anyone is addressing. That's uh yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> it's like, hey, we've got a backup, but they found the backup before you activated the backup and yeah, good luck. So um, so back to the, the, the question I was going to ask before is when you first start an engagement with a prospective customer um, and they have, you know, a hybrid environment and just, you know, a, a variety of apps, devices, locations, et cetera, how do you kind of figure out where to start, how to start and, and, and move forward? Yeah, I mean, we have a pretty straightforward process around it where we can ingest all the information that's relevant to giving them a, a, an idea of, of what an engagement would look like. So we do a ton of sort of consulting as part of our pre-sales engineering process. We ingest information, we give them some software to run that will profile their, their resource usage, and we translate that into um, a quote pretty quickly. Now, the devil's in the details. When we get into the network integration um, and some of the dependencies, that's where there, there's more work to be done. But usually that's already into the actual implementation stage. Okay. So like time-wise, if we're, you know, a 200-seat organization, relatively kind of uh, complex uh, platform, like what are we talking about in terms of time to get to get a quote and then if we accept the quote to actually deploy services? Yeah, I mean, it, it, ballpark. It, it, a lot of it also depends on the maturity of, of the organization, um, mm -hmm. to what extent you you know, you know, which of what, which your applications are really critical and maybe need disaster recovery versus which which can be fine with backup. But I would say ballpark, maybe, uh, maybe a week to three weeks um, to implement 
it could be as little as as four weeks. It could be it could be ninety days. Um, okay. A lot, you know, a lot of what we do is responsive to to what your infrastructure stack looks like. We don't want to. We we ensure that we're not forcing you to make any changes to your network, or your IPs, or your platforms. Um, we're going to ensure that we can provide resilience and disaster recovery, regardless of what your your requirements are. You hear a lot of people say, "Well, we can't use cloud because of X." Um, where that's, you know, we can't go to public cloud because of why. And, and so what we try to do is to provide as cloud services, disaster recovery as a services within your existing framework, frameworks for security and compliance and platforms. Um, for instance, we do it for IBM i-series platforms and P-series, you know, and physical servers. So, you know, we're not going not gonna to say no to that. Got you. What are your customers' uh, biggest concerns before they start off an engagement? Like, I mean, what are the top two or three most critical questions that they say, "Hey, you know, we're worried about this." Yeah, I mean, I think when we when we when we take a, a step back and and start to think about why are why are, why is there an influx of people calling us about backups and disaster recovery now? We realize that it's not that they have an increased need for backups in DR. It's that they are are just more afraid of cyber attacks, and they want to ensure that they have um, a recovery, you know, a recovery option. Um, so we actually thought, well, what can we do? What can we do to better address that that threat or that fear that they have more directly? And kind of thought about it, and going back to what I said before about you know, if an attacker gets into your into your local software, you know, backup tool, they can do a lot of damage. We, we realize that we actually have a very interesting vantage point. When, when we go and install and provide those, those backup and replication software tools at our customer sites, you know, we do connect them back to our data lake um, just so that we can, you know, do monitoring and billing and all sorts of other stuff and drive our portal. But we realized it was a really good data set to, to run uh, machine learning against to determine it if someone is in the environment doing something suspicious. Um, so we launched this tool, this, uh, this monitoring service called Observer a few months ago, and we're looking at um, uh, changes that are happening within that, that software set. If someone changes retention settings on a backup um, or modifies a job or disables a job or performs a deletion event, or even if the incremental change rate on a backup or replica changes, these are activities that might indicate that someone is within the environment um, and that they're purposely looking to destroy re- uh, recovery options in order to, to ransomware them. And so if we can detect an attacker in the backup software, um, we, could pot- it, it, we could potentially prevent sort of like a legitimate ransomware attack before it happens. Um, the other interesting thing about that is when you think about backups and ransomware, a lot of people's minds go to immutability. Well, my backups are immutable, so they can't delete that, um, which is true. But a lot of people don't have great monitoring with their systems. If someone disabled the backup, they might not know. They might wait for the mutability timer to run out. More importantly is there is no such thing as immutability when you start talking about disaster recovery and replication, just the way that it works, which means if an attacker gets in to a, or a customer's environment, they find these replication tools, they can destroy the entire DR site in seconds. Um, and so we want to we be able to track that. Um, and we now are doing something where we will automatically air gap the DR site in response to that sort of event. Cool. Uh, are you seeing any organizations or customers 
get or receive preferred rates because they're uh, employing these type of services? I, I, I say rates. I, I should talk about cyber, cyber, cyber insurance. There's a lot of talk about that in the industry now, um, and there's a lot of potential partnerships um, that are just forming. I haven't seen anything that's sort of black and white. If you do this, you will get a better rate. Um, but the the onus on organizations of providing information to the insurance companies to fill out, um, you know, all this information in their security stance is just really getting, you know, much more detailed. So when we engage with an organization for these services, typically they'll send us those questionnaires and we will fill it out on their behalf. Um, and obviously, you know, the services that we provide really hit a lot of the touch points that the um, insurance companies are looking for. Is the process similar for achieving certain compliance certifications, credentials? So if we need to get, uh, you know, HIPAA, HIPAA certified or, or it, actually I should just say be, be HIPAA compliance, or if we're, if we're looking for a um, SOC 2 uh, certification, I mean, do you help just, do you just do the questionnaire or do, can you go a little bit further than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say both, you know, um, if they tell us at the onset what frameworks they're looking to be to adhere to or be compliant with, then we will advise them what services that we should provide to to assist that. We will fill out, the, we will review the questionnaires and we will basically say, hey, these are components that we will take ownership and accountability for. These are the ones that are on you. And maybe these are some others that are on your MSSP or whoever. Um, and when and when they do their yearly audits, we'll actually, we'll actually fill them out for them. Um, you know, HIPAA is certainly one that, that we deal a lot with and, and we sign BAAs in response to all our services. And one thing about HIPAA that I don't think everybody that people realize is that you can actually get a HIPAA violation for, for data availability. So it's, you know, data theft. Um, but also if your systems are down, if people can't look up medical records, um, mm -hmm. you can actually be levied a HIPAA fine. And so resilience and, and, and availability is, is certainly important as well. What, um, I mean, I'm sure you have competitors, okay? And what does Opti9, you know, what do you kind of put up as your USP or unique selling proposition or point in, in comparison to the competitors? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I'd say one of them is, um, like I said before, we're focused on that mid-market enterprise where there are some gotchas. Um, and, and in order to do that, we, we you need to be able to build bespoke solutions. You need to be able to provide them with cloud services, you know, on the inside, from the inside out with their existing MPLS provider or their network. And so um, us having an appetite to customize and be flexible is important. Um, we also, you know, we also, I would say, go deeper with managed services. Managed services is one of those terribly vague terms, just like the term cloud that is conveniently vague for the vendors because everybody gets to define it the way that they think it should be defined. So it's really hard to look at two managed service providers and understand to what extent they're apples and, and apples, apples and oranges. For us, um, you know, actually, for us, we actually show a racy matrix in our portal, and our customers can subscribe to that um, as there's changes, as we monitor new uh, alerts and alarms. Um, but to to kind of be high level with it, you know, we we take full ownership of failover, full ownership of failback, um, write the run books. You know, so I, I think we go full much deeper, and then the and then the security stuff I mentioned before, um, this machine learning 
service where we're actually looking at your backup and replication infrastructure for cyber attacks and be able, being able to integrate with XDR and SIM tools or MSSPs when we when we see suspicious activity and air gap your your DR infrastructure. Nobody else in the industry is doing that. Um, we think it's very unique. And we have a, a playbook that we use with MSSPs. So we, when you look at the NIST framework for cyber, you know, we, we, we look at incident response as, um, as two companies or, you know, an MSSP or a SOC and us. And we say, hey, it, when there is an event, we are going to boot, boot up the isolated recovery environment. We're going to, you know, move forward with this runbook and we're going to kind of block, um, block and tackle for the security analysts to do forensics. We're going to buy them time by ensuring the application is available and work with them to know when do, when do we think the environment is now clean to fail back. You know, the last thing you want to do when you get hit with an attack is to do vendor management. You know, if you have a vendor that's providing security services and a vendor that's providing resilience, backups, DR, those vendors need to get together way in advance and work out sort of who's doing what when, you know, if the, if there is an attack and what happens afterwards. So that's what we try to do. Um, I think as well in, in the future, there is this, you know, that, that really should be one offering. You know, maybe it's a joint offering from two vendors. But if you think about a cyber recovery as a service, you know, all of these things are going to be interconnected. So might as well work it out in advance. Yeah, have that playbook ready and um, stuff goes, takes a turn for the worst. You push a button and uh, your managed service providers come online and just take the ball and and, and hopefully return it back to you. what, can you walk me through a real life scenario? I'm not asking for any company names, of course, uh, but just you know, talk talk about something that happened to one of your customers and how you know what did they do, how did they respond, and how long did it take you your team to respond, and, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll give you one that comes to mind, which is we had a customer that um, this is a while back, but this financial services organization they got hit with ransomware. Um, at that point in time, they were they were using Optinine to provide them with offsite backups as a service, no disaster recovery, just backups. They got hit with ransomware, and the attackers did exactly what I said before. They 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 seeked out their their, their all of their backups uh, and recovery options. They destroyed them all, and then they ransomware their entire environment and they effectively shut down their services. They called us and they said, "Hey, Optinine, you guys are providing the backups." Um, what do you see? You know, we logged into our backup server. We don't see any backups. And we looked and all, all the, all the backups were gone. Um, this was, this was before uh, really immutability was, was something. Um, but what we do do, what we, what we were doing at the time, what we still do is anything that's deleted um, from our, from our side and our systems and our cloud, any backups that are deleted actually go into an air gap that recycle bin for a week. Um, and so we were able to, to on the fly build them a, D, a DR environment, um, restore those backups from the air gap um, to that DR environment, set them up with some VPNs real quick um, because this is all on the fly, and and you know get their applications back up and running and get all their data back, which was which was I thought that was awesome. One, how long did that take? And two, how did you prevent the the bad guys from just going in and doing the same thing over again? Yeah. Um, well, how long did it take? It probably took about two or three days, I would say. And again, that's sort of the difference between having disaster recovery, you know, at the onset pre, pre-configured 
pre-plan versus dealing with it, you know, and, and just trying to work through backups. Um, once they were back up into their systems, they they isolated they isolated these applications um, just to these VPNs. They they only connected through means which they they were not they were not using before. Um, they didn't connect connect it back to their ADFS, and so they kind of worked backwards from isolation um, and and being able to get back in and run their business. And they kind of slowly reintegrated. I think they brought in a firm to do some forensics and and find the root cause, which I'm not even sure of. Awesome. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, let's let's kind of jump off of the topic of cyber resilience and data protection and uh, disaster recovery, et cetera. Uh, just in general, what what advice would you give to your customers and similar sized organizations in terms of preventing these uh, these ransomware attacks? Well, one thing I would say is is you know again, there's a just terrible amount of assumptions as it relates to cloud and and you know, just infrastructure and applications and SaaS. I think people really need to ask their their vendors or their providers um, to what extent you know they are securing their data for them, um, and to what extent it is it is the customer's responsibility. A good example is is Office three sixty five. Um, you know, people move from on prem exchange to Office three sixty five, and they think that they are okay. Now it's in the cloud. Microsoft's taking care of everything. I don't have to worry. Um, Many people are surprised to learn that there is no inherent backup capability in Office 365. You know, there is a recycle bin um, type folder, but you can't log into any interface and say, I would like to restore this mailbox or this OneDrive directory or the SharePoint site to what it looked like a week ago or a month ago. You can't do that in the way that you can do it with a traditional you know, backup and recovery tool. People don't realize that they just make an assumption. It's Microsoft. It's resilient. Um, it's protected, and that's just not the case. I mean, Microsoft is is replicating your data and and you know housing it in multiple data centers, um, so there's high availability, but you don't have that back capability. <coughs> Excuse me. So I think the same holds true. You'll find that same type of example across many, many, many different cloud platforms. Um, or SaaS providers. And so you really need to get the story straight day one. And you have to understand these things before you make the decision to use a certain platform. You can't run to a SaaS and then go to apply your resilience requirements after you're already there. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've, I've had the conversation or overheard the conversation quite a few times where people are using AWS and they make the assumption that, oh, well, it's all safe then, it's all secure. And a lot of it comes down to, like you know, the, like you said, the devil's in the details. Um, have you have you configured everything in the, in the appropriate manner? And oftentimes, you need to work with a partner uh, to who who understands that environment to kind of optimize it for whatever you're trying to do in, in terms of DR or um, resilience. But um, so it makes a lot of sense in terms of just general IT cyber hygiene. Um, is there anything that, you know, anything else you would advise? I'm, I'm not even talking about the, the, the cloud element, but just in general, you know, because you, you deal with a lot of different organizations. So the guys say, Hey, you know, okay, you, you've helped us optimize, uh, you, you know, you've taken over the, 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 the DR stuff, um, it, with the backup stuff, you, you're taking care of that, but what should we, what should we, what else should we be doing as an organization to kind of prevent these types of attacks? Yeah, I'd say that the the broadest advice I can give is to, from an IT perspective, is to focus on complexity. 
and and one of the goals of IT these days should be trying to to reduce complexity. Complexity is the killer, um, and and there is certainly a ton of complexity crawl uh, uh, sprawl. Sorry, as people go out there and use all these disparaged platforms and applications. The problem with that is the more complex your your sort of you know. Uh, landscape of applications and software and infrastructures, the harder it is to ensure uh, security and uptime and availability and to apply any strategies, you know, against them. Um, and so I, I do think that all the IT leaders out there need to focus on reducing the complexity of their organizations so it's more manageable. Um, and it's and it's really tough. If you're not thinking about that as a goal and a strategy, you're going to sprawl, you know, no matter what. Well, can you... Add a little bit of color to that. So what does that mean in terms of like, can you give a real life example of, because I, I would have, if I was a CTO and of a, you know, mid-sized organization and all the different people in the organization have their different requirements in terms of apps, data, devices, et cetera. And I'm pushing back and saying, no, no, we need to simplify. I mean, how do you, how do you manage that as a, as an IT leader? Well, I, you know, there's a few strategies. One is obviously, you know, uh, sun, sunsetting legacy platforms, you know, you know, a concerted effort to get rid of things that are no longer supported or end of life um, mm-hmm. to reduce the, the footprint. Um, maybe it's reducing the types of devices that you will support. Maybe you no longer, you know, are going to support, I don't know, Linux laptops or Mac or Windows. Maybe you standardize around one, which is going to be, you know, easier to manage. Um, maybe it's around, you know, it, it's, Finding you know one SaaS you know, using three SaaS platforms instead of ten, um, maybe it's outsourcing, right? If you look at backups and disaster recovery, you know instead of instead of managing that in house, you know understanding how complex your environment is, maybe by outsourcing that function, you know you've just reduced the amount of complexity that you have to manage. Okay. All makes a lot of sense. Hey, let's jump tracks entirely here. And um, as we kind of wind down this conversation, I'd like to get on to uh, digital transformation because it's just like cloud is it it can be a very kind of a term that's very broadly used and can mean a lot of different things. But I also think that it's something that can bring tremendous amount of value, either productivity speaking or monetarily or security wise. could you walk me through one of the more successful digital transformations that you've been involved with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the things that we've done is, you know, when we, you asked before about sort of our evaluation process and how long it takes to quote. And so we were talking before, about more of a backup and disaster recovery scenario. But one of the other things we do is, is we will lift and shift our customers um, applications to a public cloud or a private cloud, and you know w- when we look at the the landscape of their existing uh, servers and apps, sometimes it's not just it's not lift and shift. Sometimes we start asking about their applications, and they're running again on old on old platforms, not supported. Um, the developer quit twenty years ago, um, mm-hmm. and so depending on the application and its requirements. Um, modernizing it, rewriting it on, on a, let's say a public cloud using PaaS is going to provide a, a ton of, um, a, a ton of additional assurances. Um, and, and it will be easier to support, right? If we end up 
moving a, a specific application and we're using AWS and Lambda, um, that might be easier to support moving forward. Um, and it's going to be sort of like a common currency that they can bring in additional developers in the future to, um, to work on. It might be easier to scale. And so my strategy is typically, if it's a perpetual uh, use case, maybe it's commercial software, um, or, or it's something perpetual in nature, like a, like a database server that has specific latency requirements or compliance requirements, security compliant requirements. Typically, we like to put those on a private cloud because we can interconnect that back to their uh, IT organization and make it look and feel and act like it did on-prem. If it's something that's, cust- that's sort of uh, internet-facing, trans- transactional, SaaS platform, then we like to use public clouds and like to leverage as much PaaS functionality as we can. And by doing so, we can develop it real fast. We can get it to market real fast. We can give them um, a cost model that will scale as their traffic or business grows. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Um, what can you tell us about Opti9 in terms of you know your, your footprint, where you are, where your customers are, um, and what the future holds for you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have we have our own data centers or our own um, owned bare metal in about I think it's like twelve I think twelve locations throughout the world now. Um, we're predominantly North American based, um, so we have multiple offices throughout the U.S. from the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. Um, same thing in Canada. We do maintain infrastructure globally, though, because we have plenty of uh, North American based um, organizations that are looking to outsource ownership of these services, you know, manage cloud or, or disaster recovery um, and work with one vendor that can provide them with data sovereignty globally. And so that's why we have infrastructure in London in Paris in Amsterdam and Singapore. So they can work with one firm and then we, you know, we're adhering to GDPR and sovereignty in these different regions. Awesome, man. Um, any, any, any big plans in the next uh, year or so? Well, I think what we've done with with Observer, where we're sort of attacking, you know, the risks associated with ransomware and security through the lens of our existing services, um, was successful. You know, we're adding we're adding value and protection without having to install anything else to the client site, no agents. And I'm excited to sort of bring that same strategy to our other products and services. In fact, I think that there is um, a big need to protect the control plane. I think there's this huge focus on data plane, um, but what's actually happening in the control plane, the, the settings that are changed within the software and to what extent that is normal or suspicious, um, you know, you can call it observability. Uh, but for me, that that's something that I'm going to focus on and, and we're certainly going to have a, a, a more, you know, um, uh, tighter focus on security in general too. Probably. Is it, last question on that, is, is it just you're observing or do you have any kind of, anomalous detection kind of logarithm or algorithm, excuse me, where, um, you know, like this just, you know, you just get flagged because some unusual activity. Oh yeah. That, that's exactly what we're, we're doing. We're doing anomaly right. detection. Um, we're using, you know, machine learning jobs and we are comparing the activity to baseline and, 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 uh, and creating the machine learning jobs will create an, an, an anomalous score and based upon the score, the customers can, like I said before, they can have us air gap uh, the, right. the cloud-based data. Um, we also have an API, so we will integrate that with with XDR tools and SIM tools, which is interesting because those other tools, you know, they they can 
they can then correlate what el everything else that they're seeing within the environment to what we're seeing with, within the backup software. Right. Hey, there's some s shady stuff going on here uh, with the backups, but also in this other part, this other app, this other this data, something's you know something weirds going on. So probably if you put two and two together, um, something's bad. Bad's happening. Um, hey. Sagi, enjoy this conversation, um, and I'm I'm totally jealous that you're down in uh, Boca Raton, and I'm up here in the, the cloudy, rainy, dreary Pacific Northwest. But uh, hey, I'll give you a call in August when the humidity picks up for you. Okay, <laughs> there you go. That was a great answer. All right. All right, Mark, thanks so much. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.